Hi there, and you've tuned into Talking About Death Will Not Kill You. I'm Lisa, and today I'm speaking to uh, Philip Lee, who uh, is a retired medicine physician from palliative care in Westmead. Is that correct, Philip? Have I said that right? Yeah, a palliative medicine physician from uh, Western Sydney and Westmead Hospital. Okay. So what, what does that mean necessarily? Well, specialist physicians cover all the different specialties that are not surgical. So things like cardiology, renal medicine, respiratory medicine, and palliative medicine focuses on patients who are entering the final phase of their incurable disease. Right. And that final phase can be anywhere from a few days to several years. And it really just depends on the type of illness they have and what support they need from the palliative medicine team. Right. So I imagine the medicines you can give them uh, are not uh, would be fitting in the realms of keeping them comfortable, not so much prolonging life. So it doesn't matter about certain side effects of things. You'd be more liberal in the things you can give them. Is that kind of... Oh, oh no, you, you don't want to make their quality of life worse because of the medicines you give them. So yeah. you very, very much are focused on side effects. The, right. Uh, and also, um, it's, it's a fallacy that we don't give things to prolong life. So as an example, if someone with cancer happens to get pneumonia and they want to keep living and be with their family, it's very appropriate to treat their pneumonia. Um, right. If they, they may still, they may have kidney failure and be on dialysis and we've been asked to see them to help with their symptom management. So their life prolonging management, the dialysis will continue while we assist the treating team with managing their symptoms and patients with end-stage renal failure frequently have pain and nausea and the palliative care physicians are the experts at managing those sorts of things. So one of the fallacies that's out there about palliative care is it's just end-of-life care and that's right. not correct. Okay. Um, it's, to it's to support patients through their journey and assist them with the goals that they want to achieve during that time. So there may be occasions where we certainly do prolong life yeah. um, and there may be occasions where after a lot of communication and discussion with the family and the patient uh, is decided not to prolong life and focus on keeping the patient comfortable. Right, okay. So what sort of things do families need to know in the, in the regard of they've got somebody or they themselves have been diagnosed with something that is a terminal illness? what sort of things would it be interesting for them to know prior to, for me, I, I lost my mother to um, stomach cancer back in 2009 and we yeah. were um, through Blacktown Council, Blacktown Oncology, and then she um, uh, had care for two and a half days and uh, her last two and a half days at Mount Druitt Palliative Care. Yep. So I, I honestly didn't know anything. I was never offered any um, support in that regard to kind of know what was going on. So now I have that sort of stuff under my belt, but I'd like to extend to people when they come across this sort of situation in their life, if they can have the more information they have the best that their well, that, care for their loved one would be. That's really, really important. And I'll give you an example. When I was working, I retired four years ago, but when I was working and I would be referred a patient and their family, because it's not just the patient you're looking after, you're looking after yep. the family as well. Yeah. The very first question after introducing yourself would ask the patient or the family, what do they understand is happening with that patient's illness? 
Yeah. And more often than not, I'd be the response would be silence. Mm. And the family and the patient saying, well, that's the problem. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And I think it's one of the real failures of you just highlighted is the poor communication. There's so yeah. much focus on treatment. Yes. But yeah. there's not the communication about the overall holistic care of informing patients the likelihood of treatment working, mm. what the goals of the treatment are. Because often the oncologist will say, oh, we've got another treatment, we've got another treatment, knowing full well that treatment is not going to cure the patient. No. And it may or may not work. So the communication is really important. And one of the things that we tried so hard to do was to empower patients and the families to ask questions, to mm. say, if a treatment's being offered, to say, well, what do you expect to happen with this treatment? Yeah. As you touched on earlier, what are the side effects of that treatment yeah. so that the patient and the family can, can balance or weigh up if an experimental treatment that may make them very sick is actually worth it? Yeah. It's the second question that I would ask the patient and the family after we have gone through and informed them where things are up to is to find out from them what is important to you, what are your goals, what would you like to achieve? And I can still very much remember when I asked that question of a lady who was a, a refugee from overseas, and her, she very quickly came back and said, if I'm dying, I want to return to my country where I was born. And in fact, the treating physician came in and said, oh, no, there's lots more treatment I can give you. Mm -hmm. And that patient had got complications from the treatment and died in hospital. Oh, that's so, that awesome. so that wasn't respecting the patient's wishes. It wasn't being honest with the patient. Yep. So we yep. try and meet the patient and the family's needs in those situations. Okay. Um, the, the ultimate goal is to give them the, be the best experience they can have in this whole sort of thing. Is, is that... Uh, but like for me, I didn't realise that there was at-home care options. Um, yes. So because the, the main thing, like my, my not bringing it back to me and making it all about me because it's not a therapy session for myself, but um, I find with basically with our healthcare system as a whole, it doesn't, it doesn't just seem to, it doesn't seem to cater to different situations. And I understand there are lots of different situations that are out there. Like, for example, I had an ectopic pregnancy that ruptured. And after the procedure, I was given pamphlets on miscarriage and other sort of things and nothing that really catered to what happened to me. So I found like it was just redundant. I was just given generic information that really didn't help me. Um, so is there, is there things that we can go out there to make? Like, for example, I wanted to get my my mother, I mean, this is back in 2008, 2009, um, I wanted to get her medicinal marijuana and at the time that wasn't, I don't know if it was possible, it was never offered to us to have that sort of thing. How, how far do we have to advocate for our loved ones or for ourselves? Shouldn't that, be, shouldn't that be offered upon the patient? Is that always the case or is it not the case? It totally depends on the, the, the person who's offering the treatment. Um, 
as I said, palliative care physicians and the nursing staff as well are very good at asking the questions, you know, what's important to you? What else would you like to know? How do you think your mum's going, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the treating teams are very much focused on treating the problem, treating the cancer, treating the kidney failure, treating the, the respiratory failure. Yeah. And they're not highly skilled at having those conversations. Yeah. We can always pick a physician specialist from a different discipline who has spent some time during their training in palliative care, as a lot of the, the trainees or registrars do, because they do have some of those skills, mm -hmm. but it is still a, a major problem. And it's one of the, the biggest reasons for um, complaints being put in yeah. that we didn't know what was going on or things, things weren't offered to us. The things mm -hmm. with, you, you touched on medical marijuana, and that is still uh, a difficult, difficult area. Back in 2008, 2009, it wasn't legal. No. Um, so e even if you had wanted to give your mum medical marijuana, you would in effect have had to have broken the law to do yeah. that and the doctors could not have assisted you. Okay. Now things are changing and there are clinical trials going on which yeah. are legal so yeah. that if you had asked that question today, yeah. you would in Western Sydney, you would most likely be referred to one of my ex-colleagues who was doing clinical trials on medical marijuana. Right. who could have the conversation with you and with your mother yeah. um, to then see what was available to try and alleviate her symptoms. Right. Would, so it just sounds, but it sounds like it keeps coming back to putting it onto the family or the person to ask. So these things... Well, it, no, not necessarily. I think no. it's really important. In some settings, yes, but as I said, the, the palliative care way of doing things is to... Almost every consultation, every time you meet the patient and the family, is yeah. to always finish with, is there something else you would like to ask? Is there something else that you're concerned about? Yeah. And so leaving that conversation open yeah. rather than, as so often happens, the treating physician is, is very, very busy, in a hurry, yes. and the family and the patient almost feel like they're intruding to ask yes. another question. And unfortunately, you only had a very short experience with the palliative care team, um, but people who have, who have met them for a longer period um, always relate how easy it was to talk to the team. Yeah. And one of the things that the palliative care physicians are constantly encouraging their other colleagues, other non-palliative care colleagues to do is to refer early Yep. Um, so that palliative care can become part of the team. It's not handing over the patient to palliative care, yep. but it's supporting the patient through that journey. Mm -hmm. So when the time comes that it is appropriate to transfer the care to the palliative care team, the patient and the family are not confronted by that. Yes, yeah. Because See, so I, often, my mum's care went for 14 months and wasn't, yeah. it wasn't until the end process that palliative care was even introduced. Yeah, and, and in my opinion is that that is too late, that there would have yes. been a time through your mum's journey yes. when there were issues, whether it's emotional issues or conversational issues or symptoms, yeah. that it would have been very appropriate to refer to palliative care. And palliative care may have just met you, had a discussion, you said, yep, that's fine, we know who you are now, we'll call yeah. out when we need you, um, knowing that support is there. Yeah, so in regards to, because I spoke to um, Anna, who is an end-of-life doula, 
Yeah. Is that something that you encountered whilst working in palliative care? Is that something? Well, Anna does an amazing job. Yes. Um, and often you find that the families and the patients that she's assisting are those who have had problems through that journey. The, the palliative care physicians feel that we do very similar work in assisting patients through the journey in introducing them to, you brought up earlier about home care, introducing that very, very early on mm. and finding out what the preferences are. When, when we say to families, what's important to you or to the patient, part of that conversation is where would you like to be cared for? Mm. The, the figure that's regularly trotted out by the health, expert, the health government, the government is that their surveys show that 70% of the Australian population would prefer to die at home Mm. But at the moment, that is sitting at around about 20% dying at home. Now, that might sound like a failure, but what has changed, what changed over the course of my career was that originally patients would come into somewhere like Mount Druitt and stay there for a month or six weeks waiting to die. Yes. What has changed is that more and more patients are able to be cared for at home. Yeah, And even though the numbers haven't risen drastically for those who actually die at home, what we frequently find is that they stay at home for so much longer yep. and may be readmitted for the last one or two days, yes. either because the symptoms are out of control or the family is just so stressed they can't manage it at home. Yeah. Now, to me, that's not a failure. To no. me, that's a huge improvement. And my father died in the palliative care unit at Mount Druid Hospital, sorry, at Westmead Hospital. Yeah. And he was a doctor and he said to me, son, promise me you're never taking me back into hospital. Mm -hmm. Well, I couldn't actually do that. Mm -hmm. But he became unconscious. My mother could not care for him at home and the family. And so he was admitted back to hospital for the last 18 hours of his life. That's now, that amazing. Was now, that wasn't a failure. He, he was unconscious. He was unaware of where he was, and he died very peacefully. And my mum got the support from the nurses and the team in the hospital. So it's no, really, I don't think that's really at all. important. No, it's yeah. really it's just and the, I'll keep coming back to it. The conversation is the most important part, just as important as the medical treatment of the patient. Absolutely. And that, and that's my main goal with this podcast is to normalise the whole experience and talking about it so that people are aware sort of thing. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's even when you're not talking about it on regular, in, in regular conversation, when you're well and fine, getting to that stage where you are facing um, an immediate end of life and, a, and so to speak, um, a time limit, it does make it even harder and more traumatic to discuss what to do next. It, it, does, it, pushes, it pushes it just a bit harder. Definitely. And, and the reason why I've, uh, well, the, through Anna, I've discovered, and uh, I knew about this, um, this cause beforehand, but the Westmead push for palliative care, I, I think I contact, uh, Anna contacted a Facebook group asking for people to share their experiences. So I shared my experience with the, with the Mount Druitt uh, palliative care unit back into it was 2009 though it was a long time ago and it wasn't necessarily the most positive of experiences but um she made me aware that you know western sydney so western sydney health district this is from mount druitt to auburn 
have 16 dedicated palliative care beds. At the That's place. right. And, and that, that ge geographical description of Mount Druitt to Auburn is correct. But when you see the map, yep. um, it extends right up to the top of the Hawkesbury River. So geographically, it's a huge area. Wow. Um, and it now represents over a million people in the population. Um, and 16 so, beds are dedicated to palliative care. Now, when we say a bed that's dedicated to palliative care, it's in a different ward, it's a different mood to, to your general or to a, to a random ward in the hospital. What defines a yes. palliative care bed? So what's, what's really important is that it's, um, the team is just as important as the bed yeah. so that the patients who go to the Mount Druitt Palliative Care Unit, it's a 16-bed unit. It's in a building outside the main building, so it's a yeah. standalone unit, and it is staffed by nurses who have years and years of experience in palliative care. Yeah. So they have that experience in not only managing the complex medications that are used in palliative care, but they're skilled in conversation and communication with the patient and the family. Uh, and that is, that is just so important. Yeah. In a teaching hospital like Westmead, um, up till 2009, there was an eight bed dedicated uh, unit, a standalone within the hospital, but it was a ward that was just for palliative care patients. Yeah. And that ward was closed for a variety of reasons that I won't go into yeah. um, in 2009. And the eight beds were shifted to the oncology or cancer ward. Right. And initially they were staffed by experienced palliative care nurses who had been in Westmead Hospital for some of them up to 20 years, just in the palliative care ward. But the ward being on the same ward as the very busy oncology ward lost the identity of a palliative care ward. Yeah. The nurses became disillusioned because they didn't feel that they were being supported to maintain that palliative care identity. Yeah. And so over the intervening years between when the ward was closed in 2009 and today, there are none of those 12 to 15 incredibly experienced and talented palliative care nurses left at the bedside. Right. There are two specialist palliative care nurses who have what's called a consultative role. So they help to educate other nurses throughout the hospital and will go and see patients who are palliative, but it doesn't mean that the nurse at the bedside who's caring for the patient around the clock is an experienced palliative care nurse. And that's just so important. And there's like, how many, how many patients can Westmead Hospital take in full? Westmead Hospital has approximately 900 patients uh, load so those two palliative care specialists go throughout nurses, the whole hospital that they they spread their talent and their wow. skills <laughs> throughout the hospital where needed that ratio um, is ridiculous <laughs> it's crazy and and if you go onto the oncology ward which is a roughly a 25 bed ward there are not beds that would have a label as a palliative care bed so that if a palliative care specialist needs to have a patient admitted, they have to wait until there's a vacancy on the oncology ward somewhere where they can admit the patient. 
Now, the oncology nurses are wonderful, skilled oncology nurses. They have great um, communication skills. They have very basic palliative care skills, but they are not specialist palliative care nurses. And even those oncology nurses have said to me that they miss having the palliative care unit as part of their ward yeah. so they could go to the experienced palliative care nurses to get advice from them. Yeah. And so the, the case would be now in the way that it is uh, still in the still in the same, that's still got the same amount of beds. So someone now would probably most likely be sent to Mount Druitt. Is that the next sort of? Yes. Um, it, well, again, it depend where the, the patient, the family wanted to be cared for. They would try to encourage them to be cared for at home. And there is a community um, non-government organisation that provides the end-of-life care at home. The Western Sydney community um, chronic and complex nurses also have palliative care skills and they will look after patients who are not so close to the end of life. And there is one palliative care specialist to cover the whole district uh, who can visit patients at home. Okay. Um, and then there are the 16 beds at Mount Druitt Hospital. And St. Joseph's Hospital is a bit complicated because while it sits geographically within Western Sydney Local Health District, yep. it actually belongs to St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, so it's part of the St. Vincent's Hospital network. So it is. it has... Um, a, a small number of beds it, it may be as high as 14 but it seems to vary day by day right and it is run by a different team to that that runs the western sydney palliative care service so right. it hasn't been as as functional as it should be in terms of integrating with the western sydney palliative care service so it's still essentially run by st vincent's and would take their overflow so to speak uh, we'll still take Western Sydney patients, but it also take because um, Auburn is right on the boundary. It will often take patients from the Bankstown area, which is southwestern Sydney, yep. from the Sydney yep. local health district. So it's not dedicated to Western Sydney. So right. for all intents and purposes, the only dedicated beds are the sixteen at Mount Druitt. Now, just right. to give a comparison, southwestern Sydney, which has been in the news unfortunately because of COVID, the COVID yeah. outbreak at the moment. Uh, it has a similar population of around the million. It has 51 dedicated palliative care beds that are scattered between Liverpool Hospital, Camden, um, Brayside at Fairfield. Um, and that's an appropriate number of beds. So 16 in Western Sydney, 51 yes. in Southwestern Sydney. And I believe and, Northern and Beaches, the Northern Beaches yes, well, area? Well Northern, well, Northern Sydney, which covers from based the Harbour Bridge up to Palm Beach, Yep. They have a population of approximately 840,000 and they yep. have 51 beds as well. Um, so, so the new Northern Beaches Hospital, um, they have one up at Wurunga, they have one at uh, near St Leonard's and they're building a new, a wonderful new adolescent, young adult, eight-bed hospice in the old Manly Hospital, which is very much needed for young people mm -hmm. in end-of-life care. Yeah. Um, so I have no no concerns. I'm very pleased that Northern Sydney and Southwestern Sydney have so many beds, and it's that's just an uneven amount for us in Western Sydney that it, seems it, to be lacking. It, it is a total oversight, and and we and we need to work hard to to get those bed numbers increased in Western Sydney because it's a very needy 
yeah, media I community. Mean, well, yeah, absolutely. I was just about to say, like, not to sound suburbist, I'm a proud Western Sydney um, person who's lived here all my life. But Join the club. Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't honestly I wouldn't be moving to the northern beaches to save my life to be honest if I had like if I wanted end of life care I would want it where I love to be and that's in western Sydney um but it just seems that in our area of western Sydney we are a, I would I would say we are a low lower socioeconomic area definitely compared to northern beaches and northern Sydney for sure um it just seems ridiculous that we have 16 beds versus 52. The 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 numbers there are just way out way out of whack. So so prior to prior to West Westmead's dedicated palliative care uh, closing, how many was this? Was it was it was it ever of an equal amount, or was it always? No, no. So if you look at the eight beds that were lost at that time, that would have been a total of 24 beds. Right and. And Still. St Joseph's did have up to 23 beds. So that sort of put it almost at that even level. Yep. But things have been allowed to deteriorate over the last 12 years or so. Yep. So that instead of where other local health districts are increasing their palliative care beds, Western Sydney has been decreasing their palliative care beds. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there I'm a little constrained in what I can say because the minister, which I want to praise him for, um, Mr. Brad Hazard, has instructed the local health district to undertake a review of palliative care services across Western Sydney, oh, and that great. review has just started. Okay. And I'm really hopeful and optimistic that this will be the start of trying to correct these um, anomalies in the provision of palliative care in Western Sydney. I mean, our our, um, our next census is coming up in August, so it, it will be good to see the numbers there with Western Sydney. I feel like there are more people in Western Sydney, like we are more tightly packed in than in any of the other two areas because, I mean, I know about, around my area of Blacktown and Toongabbie, um, those two suburbs specifically, the amount of high-rise buildings that are going in in just those two suburbs, I've never seen as many as I in my in my forty years of life. I've never seen as many, and they are filled. Like as soon as they are ready to go, they are full. Even probably before they're built, I'm sure all the units. Well, it's, it's, it's happening across this across the area. You just have to look at uh, coming a little further east to Parramatta and and the Westmead area. Uh, the same thing. The high-rises. And the density of housing is is just staggering. Yeah. So I just yeah I, I so I know that there is a um, for for my listeners I know that there are there's the Facebook group called the Westmead Push for Palliative Care. If you search that in there, you can join the group. What else can we do for us in Western Sydney to help with this push and and with the you know just trying to get a fair go of, of palliative care in our in our area. Once again, it's it's, it's the conversation. We're, mm. That's what that's what the Facebook page has done. It's really opened up the conversation um, that we have been using the that particular group to answer questions and also to educate people. Yeah. Um, we've spoken to our local politicians and we've had support from both parties, both the Conservatives and the Labor Party, mm-hmm. and they've been very very supportive with this. Uh, speaking to your local councillor and the local council elections are coming up in August. 
Yeah. And so it's if you're the sort of person who really um, gets into the council elections and speaks to the candidates, it's really mm-hmm. good to ask the questions, what do you understand about palliative care in Western Sydney? What's your attitude? Because it's by making this, uh, some, it's by educating people, yep. informing them, first of all, as we start our conversation, informing them about palliative care, and then secondly, informing them about this disparity in the service that's available in Western Sydney, that's the way the change is going to happen. I really believe that the minister took this step to instruct the local district to undertake a review Mm -hmm. because of the pressure from the community, because so many people were talking about it. um, And that's what we are really encouraging people to do, to keep talking. Um, The radio stations have interviewed us, um, local papers, um, the ABC... And it's getting the message out into the into the community, into the public, uh, we, and that's the way change happens. And it yes. happens in every every area, whether it's health, whether it's transport. It's the public conversation that makes the difference. Exactly, and it's not until someone had mentioned to me, obviously finding out from Anna that that was the case. I mean, I'd actually had someone in a Western Sydney palliative care unit, and I yep. still had no idea that that was the case. I mean, and that was back in 2009. I never heard anything about Westmead closing. I mean, we'd predominantly been in Blacktown living in this area, but it was never mentioned to us. So I was absolutely oblivious to the need. Like it was, she got a care bed when she needed it. You know, if if that wasn't the case, if they were full, I'm sure I would have been aware of the plight before then, but I had no idea. It's, It's just conversations that started. So I really do appreciate the time you've taken to talk to me today because Really, people, you know, unless you're going to have someone needing that care, you don't know and you don't want to wait till that point to find out that our health system is in dire need of, of more beds in this area and because of everybody I know living in this area, you know, it's it's a really important thing to know. So I appreciate your time very, very much. No, that's fine. And, um, um, and I just, uh, and I just give just give one short story. Sure, uh, if we have time. Oh, absolutely, really, we have plenty of time. Yep, yep. Now you mentioned Anna, and I, I was talking to Anna yesterday about another issue. But she has someone who a family she's helping at the moment, and it's a, a family with someone who has a, a, a neurodegenerative disease, and a lot of people have heard of motor neurone disease. Yeah. And this person is being managed. And motor neurone disease is incurable. The, per- yeah. the person who has that will die from that. And this particular person is still a fair way from that end phase. But Anna was asking, well, how do we get an early introduction to palliative care to, so that they can start having the conversation? And, and Anna's a, a really skilled person having the conversation, yes. but she recognises that you need to link up someone like that with palliative care early so that they're aware of what the options are about yeah. home care, about palliative care units like Mount Druid, about developing advanced medical plans so the doctors know what your wishes are. Yes. So that patients with motor neurone disease often get pneumonia because they can't swallow properly. And it may be very appropriate to treat them, to treat yeah. the pneumonia. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, excuse me, it's cough. All right. 
at Alster, maybe it may be very appropriate to respect the patient's wishes when they say, I've heard that if you die from pneumonia, it's a gentleman's death. So if I get pneumonia, don't treat me. And that's also very appropriate. So this was a conversation with an end of life expert in helping families saying, how do we link a patient up with the community services that are available, the community nurses, a palliative care doctor. And so I suggested that they ask to be referred to a palliative care specialist in their local area, just yep. to meet them and have a conversation that they're referred to the community nurses again to meet them and have the conversation. So that groundwork's in place so that when the patient does deteriorate, they're not scrambling around trying to work out what to do next. And when you mean, when you say referred, do you mean that you're going to, uh, they're going to ask their, their doctor who's taking their case to pass on their details for them to then to be contacted by someone by that unit? Is that what you mean? Like a basically like that's, a referral that's correct, yes. would do? Yeah, so this, so this particular patient is being managed by a specialist in bone and urine disease and they've yep. got a, a meeting with that doctor this week. Yep. So I said, ask that doctor for a referral to a palliative care doctor close to you yep. so that you can go and meet that doctor and have that conversation. And families can actually refer to community nurses themselves. They don't need a doctor to do that. Right. Um, so that the, the intake area for Western Sydney is based in the Blacktown Community Health Centre. Right. And families can ring up and explain what the situation is and ask for a nurse to come out to see the patient at home. But and see, I wouldn't those... know that automatically. So I no, would be wouldn't. expecting this, the, the person who's treating, say it was me, would this all this information be offered to me? Or is it only because they're discussing it with Anna, their end-of-life doula? That, it's that, only because that... they're discussing it with Anna that their treating doctor has not discussed it with them. And Anna, who is an end-of-life doula, didn't know the mechanism yep. of how to make those referrals. Right. And so I was able to give, give her you know, the, the way, the mechanism of doing that. One of the other big deficiencies apart from beds for palliative care in Western Sydney is there is no central contact phone number. Um, it, it would take... The, the local health district would have to employ a dedicated person to man the phone to coordinate palliative care across Western Sydney. So if you, for example, with your late mum, had heard about palliative care, you would know where to start in terms yeah. of where to look for, where if we had a centralised phone number, it could be found by ringing the hospital switch and they'd give you the, the, the phone number it yeah. would be on the website, a variety of places. Uh, one of the worst examples was I was contacted by a doctor at North Shore Hospital. They were looking after a patient who lived in Western Sydney who was now palliative and they wanted to refer to our service. And that was fine. But then the doctor said, but Dr. Lee, you need to know you're the 12th person I've spoken to before I found the right person who could help God. me. And that's a doctor um, using their, so, their that expertise. Was a, that was a doctor ringing Jesus for Christ. North Shore, trying to find the right person wow. to speak to, to hand over the care of a patient. So, again, that's uh, hopefully the investigation or the review of palliative care services. Hopefully that will be identified as a major deficiency because you need coordinated care. And if you as a family member 
want your mum to be cared for by the palliative care team and you don't know where to start, the likelihood is it won't work. That's Um, just ridiculous. Yes, that's another part of the investigation. So Southwestern Sydney, again, they have a centralised number, which I think, well, my memory is based at Liverpool Hospital, and that centralised intake point will then have the conversation with whoever's rung to work out where that person can get their best care, whether, you know, where, near where they live, whether they need a nurse, whether they need a doctor, et cetera. So and, South uh, Western Sydney have, have, that, have that going they for the central, Northern, Northern yes, Sydney too? centralised. I don't know about Northern Sydney, okay. but certainly South Western Sydney do because when we had patients in Westmead who lived in South Western Sydney, it was very straightforward to link them right. um, because uh, we knew the centralised number. Right, so it's just okay. Um, I'm sure there's not the same deficiency when it comes to like birthing units. So the opposite end of the spectrum of people bringing in life, I'm sure it's not not as hard to. It's, uh, so I'm not. I, yes, I'm, I'm not sure. But again, mm. you, uh, it's one of the biggest problems um, in health in general is that communication. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully um, I'll, I'll steer everyone to the Facebook group to join in and to have that conversation and to be aware. And I thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great. You've taught me a lot of stuff. I had no idea that, you know, I mean, I knew that the numbers were off and I knew that Western Sydney, uh, Westmead, sorry, had closed. So they don't really have a specific unit anymore. But seeing the and the deficiency there with contacting and, and orchestrating is just ridiculous. So thank you so much for for educating us all so we know this problem. That's a, that's a pleasure, Lisa, and please feel free to reach out again if you have any uh, questions. I will do. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank